us blue collar boys are confusing the New Yorker. No, man, listen, I <laughs> listen. I worked, I worked I plenty of retail jobs, and retail hours are all over the place. But... Up there, in socialist New York, <laughs> home of the Jews. <laughs> no, that's why they was... call it Jew York. <laughs> that's no. He said it was the. Jewish capital of the United States of America. <laughs> the That's Jewish capital. <laughs> I mean, and I did I tell this last week? I think uh, I told yeah. this story. Uh, yeah. I hope okay. you told this story because if you didn't, our listeners just got real confused. Yeah, they just thought you were a fucking bigot. That <laughs> <laughs> was definitely oh. mentioned on one of our uh, episodes. Um, oh, it was mentioned on the Patreon episode. Was oh, it that's Patreon? Right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Patreon. it was Patreon. Fuck. Now you got to tell the story so they have context. Well, so okay, I will tell the story. Yeah, because boy, that really comes out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> so I was, at a, I was recently at a uh, a funeral. It wasn't actually the funeral. It was the viewing before the funeral, the day before the funeral. Right. So it's a weird place to be like, you know, funerals are not natural places where people really like being. Uh, and, and, you know, you meet a lot of people that you've never met before. And I was standing. I, mean, in- I think it's like, we need to like disclose. I don't know if it's like this up New up, up, up New York. I don't know if it's like this up North, but like Southern viewings are like different because like everybody's like talking and like yeah. trying to have a good time, you know? Yeah. Everybody's, yeah. Depends on where they are, but yeah. You know, and it's various. It's a very social, and this was yes, down south, so it's, it's, a, it's a very gathering, very social. A lot of people, I mean, hundreds of people. Um, and so my dad introduced me to these two old little men. I mean, and I say little; they were very not very tall, like two just very short old men, probably in their seventies, give or take. I'd never met them in my entire life; I had no idea who they were. My dad did, and and so he introduced me, and they started talking to me and asked me like where I'm where I'm live and all this stuff, and. I just you get the, the reactions that you get when you say you live in New York City down south. It just it's exhaustive. <laughs> it's just exhausting. It's exhaustive. It's just everything. They're like, well, what about all those shootings that are going on? I was like, man, there's eight million people here. There's going to be a couple shootings. Like it's, it's just a matter. Of, it just happens in a big yeah. urban, densely populated area. That's just because. And but honestly, we got less guns than you guys got down here. If we're being totally, you know, totally on the level. But it, anyway. So I get lots of questions, but then this guy, when he found out I was from New York City, he just paused for a second and out of <laughs> fucking yeah. nowhere, out of nowhere, he goes, New York City is the Jewish capital of the United States. And I just went, oh, my God, I need to get out of here. Like in my head, I'm like, please just how do I I want to pull the parachute and just jump out of this plane right now. And we know we're close. Someone to say that. I don't know. I don't know. I was like, I mean, you maybe if that's what you believe, you can think it. But why would you say that to someone that would like that would like be like somebody coming up to me like I'm from El Paso, Texas, like El Paso, Texas. That's the Mexican capital. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was. Oh, God. So, yeah. So that Dalton thinks that's hilarious. He likes talking that's about this. Oh, so fucking funny. The Jewish <laughs> capital of the United States. I'm just like, oh, my God. This is. Let me uh, just throw a statement out there. Uh, we, if you catch my graph, do not support anti-Semitism in any way, <laughs> shape or fashion. Until you let go of what is seen. Stop talking about your money. 
All right, kick it off. Let's see if you catch my grift. We're a podcast about con artists, charlatans, and thieves. And I am Dalton. I'm joined by Austin. Heaven O. Fuck you, dude. Quit <laughs> doing that. <laughs> and Charlie Butters. Give your wife your land back. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> this is America, Ayo. baby. The land of the free. I- no. No. Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So, Dalton, I'm going to have a lot of trivia for you right up front. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. How many presidents have there been to this date? Fuck. 47. Close. 46. 46. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Uh, DT was 45. Yeah, you're right. Right. 46. Right. How many of those 46 presidents died in office? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Three. Do you, you'd be surprised. There's actually eight people, eight presidents that died in office. What? Yep. What? Hold on, what? <laughs> so four died oh. of natural causes, and then there were four presidential assassinations. Who were the assassinations? That kind of three. Who did you count? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, fuck the early one. Uh, what's his name? Help me. No, Abraham Lincoln was the earliest. Oh, really? Okay, well, JFK. JFK, and I assume there was one before Lincoln. All right, so I'm going to go through them all real quick. Okay, so there's four natural causes, four of assassinations. The first president to die in office was in 1841. It was William Henry Harrison. He died of pneumonia. Because Ooh, he didn't wear a coat to his inauguration. The That's it. It's the, no, it's, Charlie got it. Didn't wear a coat. And he got caught in a torrential downpour and caught pneumonia and died of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. he didn't wear a fucking coat to his inauguration. I don't know if it was the inauguration, but I know it was the coat and he got wet and that was it. Um, I feel like it was the, I feel like that's what it was because on Parks and Rec, they have like a, they have like a um, episode where they go to the place where he's at and they have uh, the, like the ball that they rolled around when he was, uh, um, when he was. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah. He was only president from March 4th, 1841 to April 4th, 1841. He was only president for a fucking month. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, he, they have this this ball that uh, this big metal ball that they would roll around to his different like towns when he was going to town to town to like uh, do his speeches or whatever. Yeah, it was like a whole episode in Parks and Rec. That's the only reason I fucking know that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> taught me all kinds of stuff. Um, all right. So then after William Henry Harrison, uh, it was Zachary Taylor. He died of uh, most likely cholera. We're not totally sure, but it was definitely a stomach disease. Then Abraham Lincoln was killed um then you then well this is like when you start to get all the assassinations uh then you got james a garfield was shot and killed uh, by a guy who thought he it was a big part of the reason that garfield was nominated and won the presidency and he was really upset that he had not been given a job as a diplomat in either paris or vienna so he shot him and killed hmm. the president uh, then again, it happened in 1901. William McKinley was shot by an anarchist. And this guy, guy who shot him definitely has like big early incel vibes, though. Like, <laughs> even though he's got uh, anarchist politics, um, he was he a young kid. I think he was like 21 when he shot him. He was convicted, tried, convicted, and executed within two months of McKinley's death. Um, after so we gotta get this one quick, <laughs> yeah, that's, they were they weren't fucking around. The, the courts were moved a little quicker than after um, 
McKinley was shot, all of his entourage jumped on uh, this guy, um, Leon, and started beating the shit out of him. And McKinley himself said, please go easy on him, boys. Go easy on him. Don't, don't rough him up too much. Meanwhile, he's like bleeding with a gunshot. <laughs> uh, 1945, FDR dies. He dies of a stroke, though, uh, in his third term. I assumed that it was polio related. No, he, he, was, he, he beat the polio. Uh, hmm. He just had a, he was an old, an old guy. And then in 63, JFK. <laughs> and that was it. You know, like, it, it's funny. You look at like, um, it's like every 20 years or so for a while, it was like, well, there goes another president. <laughs> that was it. So I, I did oh, skip, the good old days. So I skipped one president, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I did skip one president who died in office, and this is the person that we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, what, who I skipped is uh, one of our presidents from the great state of Ohio, Warren G. Harding. Ooh, one that you don't hear much about. No, you really don't. And there's there's a lot of reasons for it. <laughs> which there's gonna... a school not far from me named after him. Yep. Uh, yeah. He is a... a he is a, an Ohio-born president. Um, so he died halfway through his third year in office. It was August 2nd, 1923. He was in the middle of a. He had taken a train to the West Coast, and he did like a West Coast tour. So he went up to like British Columbia, came down. He was ended up in San Francisco when he suddenly presidents got, were going on tour. Yeah, they campaigned. As the president of the whole United oh, States, okay. he had to go visit other states. And, and was it in. like prior to his election? No, he was president. He was like three years into his his presidency. Oh, was he campaigning for the next election? He, I mean, I think he just was visiting the states that he was the president of. <laughs> well, don't, they don't do that today. Yes, they do. Biden flies yeah, all over the place. They do that, yeah. yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> they yeah. just don't make a big deal about it. Right. Like People made a big deal about it when Trump was doing it because they said that he was like promoting himself for the next election, which... I mean, wasn't really as true as like just saying that he was just going around doing his normal shit, but it was, he was a little bit different than everybody else. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. They fly all yeah. over the place. They're, they're always in, they don't, yeah, they, they're like, he'll fly to like Biden will fly to California and give a couple of speeches, visit someplace or maybe a factory and then he'll fly back. You know, they're I on just, the road. I don't know. I just was under the assumption that they were too busy for that. I mean, I think that's part of the job is that you go out and you meet your constituents. You know, I guess, I guess, I don't know. And appear at places and give speeches. And a lot of times it's tied in with fundraising as well, because okay. you're always fundraising. If not on your own behalf, then on your, because you as the president are the head of whatever political party you belong to. And so they're, you know, they're always fundraising for down ballot people because it's, gotcha. you know, but anyway, so he took ill while he was in San Francisco and eventually he he died um while he was in san francisco so in the months and years that follow there was a bunch of speculation about how he actually died so part the of gays the gays killed him <laughs> yeah no we're not taking credit for that one there's a few that we might take credit for hurting <laughs> seems hurting seemed pretty vanilla for our for our taste um it, it, officially, it, the death was listed as congestive heart failure, but his widow, Florence, never allowed an autopsy to be performed. She absolutely overruled it and said, no, you're not going to give my husband an autopsy. Hmm. We're going to take him home and bury him. So we don't know for sure. Um, but in 1930, a book titled The Strange Death of President Harding was published with the shocking conclusion 
that Harding was actually murdered. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the book was actually based on the diaries of this guy uh, named Gaston Bullock Means. And that's the guy we're going to be talking about today. Oh, okay. Okay. So Gaston Means. Um, I'm all for a good conspiracy theory. Yeah, this is this has got one, um, and we're gonna go through it. Well, I I I've had to read more books for this episode, I think, than I've had to read in any other episode. This really, is a, this is a four book episode, and I'm like ready to scream because the thing that I and I'll put this out in the front. I will read two different books about the exact same thing, and they have completely different answers as to what happened. So I'm putting this together as best I can based on a bunch of information that absolutely contradicts each other. I mean, it's like TV news, right? You got Fox News and CNN on completely different sides of the political spectrum, and you got to kind of like piece together like the gray area. Yeah, a little bit. Similarities, similarities it's more, are. It's more like this date and this time Gaston was in Mexico, and then the other book is like, no. No, he's actually in New York. And I'm like, well, well you can't be in both places. Like <laughs> we got <laughs> to pick a place. So some of the stuff that I'm, I'm I'll read or that I'm going to share, um, I feel pretty confident about if I don't, or if I think it's hilarious and just completely ridiculous, I'm going to put up both, <laughs> both sides of the, or both uh, stories and see which one, you know, we can believe whichever one we want at this point. The other thing, and we've talked about this before is these guys, they don't keep very good notes or diaries. So, you know, going back and having to pick all this stuff up from the 1930s is it can be a little tricky. So anyway, I'm going to do what I can with what I got. So this guy, Gaston, was born into um, Southern aristocracy. He did not not want for very much. He was uh, he was born in Concord, North Carolina on July 11th, 1879. Um just for a little bit of context as to kind of like his upbringing, his grandfather was a guy named William C means. He um, was a general in the army and was referred to as the general, which was just fun and a weird <laughs> Southern thing to do. Like it's like, even if you're out of here, well, this, this motherfucker doing it's like car insurance. No, he had a <laughs> 3000 acre plantation with a whole lot of slaves. The, so the, the general was apparently just like a mean, nasty, vindictive son of a bitch, too. He was he and it's weird that I, we just run into these people all the time where he was very litigious. He sued everybody. Like if he had any sort of problem with somebody, you could do that in the 1800s. Court. Yeah. Yeah. It's the. Yeah, absolutely. Lawyers have been around since the beginning of time. You see every old people, every old people, fuck, every old person I know is like people nowadays. I just want to sue for the heck of being sued. You can no, get sued just... for a McDonald's coffee falling in your lap. Burp, burp, burp. Like yeah. it didn't happen back when they were younger. Oh yeah, no, it happened. It happened. It's just all the people that are saying that didn't have any money, and there wasn't a TV, you know, blasting the news that oh the general is at it again. He sued all of his neighbors for you know these made up transgressions and right. You know, he's just got enough money where he can do that, and it's so, matter. Whenever I see my grandma tomorrow, like no grandma, they did do that. You were just poor. Yeah, you were poor, <laughs> and there was no television when you were born. <laughs> So um, the general was in tied up in a bunch of lawsuits in the all like until the day he died. Uh, and then when he died, his property was split up between the, his five children. Um, the youngest, which was the guy named William Gaston means who would go by da, 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 the colonel. I was like, well, I don't know what it is of this family and their fucking military titles. Insane. At least the general was a general. The colonel was not. It was just a nickname that everybody called him. He was were a lawyer. They, did they, were they involved in the like, Civil War in like some capacity? Or? So, yeah, it was around the time of like when 
the, the Gaston means his dad um, inherits all this land. It's during um, reconstruction, right? So it's okay. post civil war. And all of a sudden he's got this big piece of land that he can't use slave labor to work. And so he decides I'm going to go pursue law. I'm not going to try to be, you know, a farmer like my Maybe dad. That's where the title came from the Colonel. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it is a military title. I think what happens is just like weird Southern aristocracy. Like they have like, Oh, that's the Colonel over there. And they just, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's a fucking weird thing. They definitely, his son's, I, his son's the captain, but it's spelled T H A. Yeah. It's, it's just like, it's like, you're not a Colonel. I mean, Colonel Sanders wasn't a Colonel. He was at least in the army, but he was not a Colonel in the army. He got, he was honorary discharge. Like listen, three. listen, listen, there's 11 herbs and spices. Those are me. <laughs> for promotion okay yeah so <laughs> these guys were very well connected like they were married like through the family there were uh there was at least one congressman one general in the so during the civil war uh and a governor so they i mean this is a very old money wealthy southern family that has a ton of connections right and right. gaston as you're going to see really just like mercilessly exploits those connections like he wouldn't have been able to do anything had it not been for his family connections like i'm and he's proud just, of him always chase the clout brother yeah. chase the clout we'll, we'll see how you think <laughs> at, the, at the end <laughs> so gaston was pretty unremarkable kid he eventually attended the university of north carolina he dropped out when he was 21 he then went on to become the super superintendent of schools in this little mill town of um, Albemarle is the name of the town. And so, like, even though at a time a degree wasn't required to land a job as a school superintendent, he right. most likely got, got, got the job because he, why are you taking off your shirt? Is it really that hot? Or are you just trying to compete yes, with no, me? No, it is hot. It is very hot. Um yeah, so he basically his family got him a job. They're like, "Oh, look at our our dumb uh, dropout kid. He can absolutely <laughs> Charlie too. <laughs> uh, our dumb dropout kid can more than handle this job overseeing a bunch of schools because we're well connected, and that's the job. I mean, that happens here. That happens in my hometown, right? I know. And then, like, just like your buddy that lives next door, like, oh damn, I could run the fucking school. That will be no problem. Then they're my superintendent, and they get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's terrifying, isn't it? Yes. Like yeah, they, just, they've and, never been a teacher in their life. Yeah, never changed either. Like this guy is overseeing the budget and yes. teachers in a school system has zero experience. Yes. Or expertise. And he's never like went to college. He's never taught yeah. a class. He just runs for it. And th- th- that, I, don't, I feel like that shouldn't be an elected position. No, I agree. too. <laughs> I agree, too. There should be some accountability, but maybe not an election. That and corner. Corner should not be an elected position either. Yeah, like, a, yeah, absolutely. Because they don't know what the fuck. No, they've never seen a dead body before. No. So, um, so he was only superintendent of schools for a couple of years, and then he got a job with the Cannon Cotton Mill company as a salesman, basically a traveling salesman. Um, and this is this is the kind of the job that got him out of North Carolina. So while he was a salesman, he ended up traveling to New York, Chicago, Boston, St. Louis, Philadelphia. He even made it to San Francisco. So now he's now he's out in the world, and you. As someone who had never been in New York, remember what it was like not that long ago when you came to New York for the first time. Yeah, 
yeah, it was uh, a culture shock to say the yep. least. Yeah. So I think there's some of that. I also kind of think this, this, like he gets a little spoiled because he's making a lot of money. He's making about $5,000 a year, which this is in the early 1900s, which is the equivalent between anywhere between 150 and $180,000 a year. So good money, right? Yeah, and that's amazing money. Anywhere in the world, that'd be good yeah. money. So he's living, he's living high, and he's in, and he's good at it because, well, we'll find out later why he's so good at it. Um, but he's 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 got this job. He's, he likes it. It's he's, he's doing what it was, but he kind of gets bored with it. And this is something that we're going to see over and over again, where he gets bored with things that he's doing, and he's like, okay, I need a little bit more excitement. I need a little bit more intrigue. Um, so what he does is in 1914, he was newly married. He had a child on the way. He quit his job and approached this guy named William J. Burns. Now, William J. Burns used to be in the Secret Service, and he left the Secret Service and started his own detective, private detective agency called the William J. Burns Agency. Do we count them as cops? Yeah. Oh, big time. Oh, <laughs> when you, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so um, his agency... Burns was connected through the family again, once again, like he's, he's constantly just bilking where he, his social standing to get all these jobs and to get anything. But Burns's agency had gained notoriety after the investigating and after investigating the Los Angeles times bombing in 1910. Do you know anything about this? No clue. So in 1910, the, um, the guy who owned the the new I'm sorry I keep saying New York Times the L.A. Times is a guy named Harrison Gray Otis. He is a he's the owner and he's a huge uh, anti-union guy, right? Right. And so the union wanted to send him a message, and specifically it was the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers. So these are iron workers in L.A. and um, Harrison's out there rabble rousing and trying to break up strikes and break up these union gatherings. And so, um, these two brothers named JJ and JB McNamara for John J and James Barnabas McNamara decide, you know what, we're going to fucking blow up the LA times building. <laughs> so they, uh, to show this anti-union asshole, what we're doing, they were part of the union. That's um, very cool. Uh, right. <laughs> so they went and they, they, they went and there was um, an alley between these two buildings and they planted a bunch of dynamite next to the printing ink, which was highly, highly flammable. And they blew that motherfucker up. They did it in the middle of the night, but they didn't realize that there were actually people still working in the building oh. because they had to hit the early edition. Right. That's the paper gets to you yeah. so early because people work all like 24 hours in the newsroom. They didn't realize that. Um, and they, Unintentionally, there were uh, killed 21 people and there were 115 people in the building and there's Oof. at least 21 people dead. Right. So it wasn't good. They um, big trial. This is like the largest, one of the largest domestic terrorism uh, acts in the United States in history. I mean, like, and I'm surprised that a lot of people don't talk about it, but um, the, the McNamara brothers go to, uh, to prison. Um, one of them takes a deal. The other, one of them insists that the other one takes a deal. He's like, no, my, my, you know, my uh, brother didn't do this. I did it. I was the ringleader. You know, he should, he should be set free. And uh, he actually was funny when he got out of jail, he ended up going back to lead the same union again. They welcomed him with open arms. <laughs> like, this is a guy Welcome that we can back, trust. Comrade. Yeah, come back. You can, <laughs> if you're willing to blow up buildings and kill 21 people for us, then you know what? We're, we're, we're going to take you back. Um, so, yeah. So Burns got hired as a private detective to come in and investigate it. And he eventually 
caught these guys. And, and like I said, it was a big trial. It was a huge, huge deal at the time. Uh, but he, that's how he made his reputation. So Gaston is like, I want to go work for this guy. I'm going to be a great detective. I'm like Sherlock Holmes. This guy just needs to see how good I'm going to be. Um, and in actuality, he offered uh, Burns a proposition. And this is from, um, which book is this from? So this is from a book called uh, Spectacular Rogue. And it was written by this guy, Edwin Hoyt. Came out in 1967. Is a 007 model? <laughs> Spectacular Rogue. <laughs> uh, and it is a super detailed, kind of dense book, but it has a lot of, lot of info on, on Gaston Means. It's all about Gaston Means. But anyway, this is from that book. It says, Gaston asked Burns for a job. He also offered a proposition. He would establish a commercial department, in quotes, for the agency if he could get a cut on the on the proceeds means had several ideas that interested william j burns one was simple enough a bank protection plan another was more ingenious it involved membership program for automobile owners who would pay yearly fees for protection and guaranteed investigation into auto thefts describe protection i think it's exactly what it is it's like we're going to make sure that your money is safe in this bank and we'll keep everybody away Okay. okay. This is like a cross between insurance and like a mob protection. That's what scheme. I was thinking. Yeah, That's no, this is hundred percent what that is. This is okay. absolutely what it sounds like. And this is all Gaston's idea. So he goes on the strengths of the, of these ideas and his persuasive conversation means was hired by the Burns agency at $25 a week, plus commissions on any new business he brought to the office. So Gaston kind of does this thing where he's like, I'm such a brilliant detective. And it's like, no, you're kind of a shady dude uh, that, knows how to make some money for your boss. And so your boss is like, yeah, I'd love to make more money because no one would say no to that. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. He, you know where we can make more money, Austin? On our Patreon. Yup. At patreon.com slash if you catch my grifts. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so at the outbreak of World War I, Burns was approached by the Germans to act as an agent for them in the United States. He declined because he was already working in that capacity for the British Empire. It was that would have been a conflict. And at this point in World War One, America had not entered the war. So we were a neutral country. So you could do things like that. It wasn't weird that you were working for the Germans. Um, What he did say, though, Burns recommended to the Germans that they look up Gaston means they said, this is your guy. He could actually absolutely be an agent. And it's not clear if he was working directly for Burns anymore. It doesn't feel like he was. It feels like he just like, you know, Burns knew Gaston was out there doing his whatever detective stuff that he was doing. And so he's like, go talk to him. So the Germans went to to Gaston. They were like, Hey, you want to be our, essentially a spy for us. And Gaston's like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to be a spy <laughs> for you. Yeah, I would love to be a spy for you, Germany. <laughs> yeah. And, and it didn't really, it, it didn't last long because America got into World War I pretty shortly after that. So he was a German spy for a little while, and then he wasn't. Then the U.S. government was like, hey, guy, you got to Yeah, it sorry, off. you can't do this anymore. Uh, fortunately, in 1921, Burns, again, the, the private detective agency owner, made was named as the head of the Bureau of Investigation, which is the predecessor to the FBI. Hmm. And he was the first director, kind of progressive, to hire women as agents, which would okay. be immediately undone by his, <laughs> the next person to hold that job, which is a man named J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Yep. Okay. Hoover got in, fired all of the women, and the FBI did not hire another woman until Hoover, Hoover died. Yeah. <laughs> but like, listen to the date. They didn't. They didn't hire another woman until Hoover died in 1972. Wow. Now they were secretaries, but they were never an agent. They could never be an FBI agent. Was a woman. So I 19- really feel like. This avoids a whole other group of detectives at an agency. That I know recently, what you're about to say. <laughs> yes. The Pinkertons, because the they Pinkertons. definitely had like, did a lot of the same shit. They did. They, they had, you know, female uh, people in, in their roster and stuff like that. So why, how do they get to say that they were the first to do all this? when we know like the Pinkertons definitely did all this. So this is what's different between this agency and what the Pinkertons were doing. Well, the Pinkertons were private, detectives. but the Pinkertons were pri- private. Okay. So Burns was named to the Bureau, the Federal Bureau of Investigations. This not, okay. not the Federal Bureau, but it's just called Bureau of Investigations. But that is part of the Justice Department overseeing. Like that is that is what the FBI would become. So the okay. Pinkertons are a private company. Burns takes over the actual governmental agency. But Burns. Okay. So. Before that, though, with his own agency before that. Oh, yeah. He was running both at the same time. Okay, so he, so- he, he kept running his private detective agency. Okay. And he's also running the governmental bureau of investigations. <laughs> Major like conflict of interest. Yeah. But he, he was able to do I, both. I really, I'm really curious. I'm sure we'll get into it whenever we decide to do our Pinkerton uh, episode, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. But I'm not really curious. As coming to- soon. Why? they went with his company over the Pinkertons who'd been around for much longer. It was just, I think it was just his connections. He, I think he also was a big name because of the New York times. I mean, fuck man, the LA times case. I think he was really well known to the public. Whereas the the Pinkerton at this point, the man Pinkerton was dead. I mean, so it could have been a variety of people that were running that agency. And you know what? Honestly, they may not have wanted to do it. Like if they were approached, they may have said, no, you know what? I like making money more than I would rather be, you know, a public figure. True. It was really obvious that Burns was like being a public figure and he'd been in the secret service before. So he'd been kind of, he jumped in and out of government work a bunch. Okay. If I had to guess, okay. that's what I would say. Um, okay. But, you know, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover was at the, um, was at the bureau and was not happy. He thought he should have been promoted and not Burns uh, or, and not okay. Burns get brought in from outside. But Hoover is going to have his own. He oh got 50 years of fucking terror under that guy. Um, I can't. It's just hard to fathom how much damage and power he had. Um, anyway. Yeah. So he so now Burns decides, hey, I'm going to bring means into the Bureau of Investigations. Right. So now means it I means I'm going to call him Gaston. Sorry, I don't want to confuse all these different names. So Gaston is now officially working for the federal government at what would be the FBI. So now he's got all this governmental connections, all this government power. And while he's there, he's actually named the private detective for the first lady of the United States, Florence Harding. I did not know that was the title. It's not. I, I really want everybody because we're specifically using his name as Gaston. I want everybody to think of 
fucking Gaston from fucking Beauty of the Beast. If I show you the picture, if I show you a picture, it's the exact opposite. He's this like old, this frumpy fat guy that wears a little a, a little derby cap and just is, oh my yeah. god. The only thing I can think of is just the guy that looks like that with the big fucking chin and everything. No, this is the guy. He's not. This guy has no chin. Uh, he's several, but they all kind of just <laughs> sink into each other. Um, he's a he's a pasty man. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, so he's now working basically directly for the first lady of the United States, right? She has him, um, you know, Florence is like, I don't know if I can trust him. So she kind of puts him through the paces a little bit and has him act as a courier between her and this psychic named Madam X. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. (laughs) We're hiring psychics for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. No, no, no. This is the private psychic of the first lady. first lady. Of the United oh, States. Okay, okay, so okay, okay. Apparently, she says that she, that what Gaston in his book, in the book says that That's he, still she, wild. The wife oh, yeah. of the leader of the free world is hiring psychics. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That is like, well, Reagan, uh, the Reagans had astrologists that used to rule and their calendars. And they would refer to the, they would ask the astrologists about like important, um, important speeches and certain days. And the astrologers go, I wouldn't give that speech on this day. I would do it like this. And so he had had an astrologist that essentially set the president and the first lady's calendar. And everybody had to bend to whatever the astrologist was feeling about that specific date. It's wild. This is sorority white girl Twitter's wet dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So Florence, the first lady has this woman named Madam X, who she relies on for all these answers to problems. And obviously you don't want that coming out. So you need someone that you can trust to like actually courier the, the um, correspondence back and forth. So she tests uh, Gaston out and has him bring the documents and he does, and she feels good. And so she's like, finally, I can take you in to my confidence and, and, you know, we can, we can do this. You can, you can help me out with a few things. Um, so what she, she, she goes to Gaston. She's like, I have a problem. And she said, there's a young woman. Her name is Nan Britton. And she is claiming that she and the president had maintained an affair for a number of years. And this is bad news. What was even more scandalous was that she accused uh, Parting of being the father to her young daughter. Oh, no. Yeah. Despite uh, the otherwise childless president claiming that he was sterile. Oh, I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. So. It does turn out that Harding is he has had multiple affairs um, and he's, he's had several affairs and these have all been documented. But this was a big one because this is now a woman also claiming I have your baby and Florence is not happy about that. Like you would understand, right? Yeah. He's, he's got a presidential reelection coming up in a year. He's, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that you don't want to get out. So she hires Gaston to figure out what the fuck is going on with this. Um, so she wanted to find out if the, the affair was true. Then she wanted to find out about the baby. Uh, and she also believed at the same time that President Harding's own attorney general, a guy named Heron, Harry Doherty, was somehow involved in the affair. And Doherty was the man who had pursued Harding to actually run for president. Like they knew each other in Ohio and he was like, you've got to run. You will win. You got the look. You've got the politics, like everything about you screams. You can be a president was like really pushed him to do it. And then when he Harding became president, he made Doherty the uh, attorney general. Right. Makes sense. Doherty, not really electable, but still in politics. Um, So she 
also she Florence is like, I think Doherty's got something to do with this. He may be trying to do this so that, you know, he's got something on the president, right? So the president can't move against Doherty because Doherty knows about this affair and about this child. He's like, she's like, it wouldn't surprise me. That's the kind of guy that he is. So that's, that's sort of what she tells Gaston. Gaston's like, yes, ma'am. I'll absolutely look into all of this stuff. Um, Gaston really quickly found out that yes, man and the president were having an affair, but he couldn't prove that the child was the president's. Right. Uh, How DNA testing. Right. You can't prove yeah. it. You're like, this baby kind of looks like a baby. It doesn't really look like anything. You can't tell whose kid it is. So it sent Florence into hysterics when when she found out, like when he confirmed that, hey, you know, the president was is having an affair with this young woman. Um, she accused Gaston of lying. She eventually got her husband involved, having him fire Gaston because she's just so pissed off that he actually told her the truth that she's like, I need you to fire this guy. So he comes in, he fires um, to to Gaston Um, at the confrontation, though, Gaston would reveal to the president for the first time that he had evidence of the affair that really made Harding mad. Uh, And this would lead to this like crazy cat and mouse game that like you know harding was was scared that gaston was going to go to the press with all this information and so he was like if trying I to was placate scared him. that he was going to go to the press the last thing i would do is piss this dude off well he didn't know right he was just his his wife was like this man you need to fire this man this man is just done wrong by me he's and, and harding is like well absolutely i'll fire him and then he then gaston's like she wants to be fired because I know about your affair and Harding's like, Whoa, okay. Um, so back off there a little bit. Anyway, it's this long complicated thing. Um, yeah. And, and, and it just stretches on and on and there's a lot of back and forth and the book is really dense about this stuff. But, um, while all this is going on, there's another guy who's really close to the Hardings. His name is Jess Smith and he dies by suicide. Although Gaston starts to believe there's more to this. This is like the house of cards intrigue shit. Um, He was saying that Harding or someone on his behalf was starting to tie up some of these loose ends, you know, trying to, trying to reduce the people that actually know about the affair, trying to really just put the lid on this whole thing. So then they go to the West coast and we're pretty much to the point of Harding's death, right? Florence is the last person that sees Harding alive. She was in his room. She uh, was reading him a rather flattering article in the Saturday Evening Post before turning in for the night in a separate bedroom. I slept in separate bedrooms, probably because she's married. I think it's like a thing that was happened pretty common back then where they would sleep in separate beds or if they're in a hotel, separate bedrooms. I think she's also a little pissed off at him about this whole Nan Britton affair. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so probably. It's you're like keeping up appearances because you're the first lady and you, a divorce would look terrible. Um the night nurse would go on to discover Harding's body in bed, dead. Um, and after everything that would that had occurred before the, between the two of them, Florence still saw Gaston as a friend, right? And called him in and basically confessed to murdering Harding straight to him. What? <laughs> yeah, she said, and this is this is from the book that he that he's like, I this is the story, this is how Harding died. She said, as you know, everything was closing in. As his secretary, I learned of dangerous, which, dangers which I had not dreamed from all directions. They came, Florence continued. And then one day he was writing a letter. I casually asked him, to whom was he writing? He replied that he was writing to his old father in Marion. He lied. That letter, letter was to Nan Britton. I intercepted it. No, I have no regrets. Silence again. I watched her face turn even whiter. And for a brief moment, her lips quivered. 
but her voice was clear and firm. And she said, quote, I was alone with the president and only about 10 minutes. It was time for his medicine. I gave it to him. He drank it. He lay back on the pillows a moment. His eyes were closed. He was resting. Then suddenly he opened his eyes wide and moved his head and looked straight into my face. I was standing by his bed bedside and she paused. I could not refrain from the question. You think he knew? Yes, I think he knew. Then he sighed and he turned his head away over on the pillow. After a few minutes, I called for help. The papers told the rest. Wow. Wow. I don't understand. <laughs> she poisoned him. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She gave him his that? medicine, his medicine. She poisoned the president. Why didn't you just say that? And then she said, because it's got to be dramatic. This guy, <laughs> everything about this guy is dramatic. Everything about this guy is absolutely the most dramatic thing, version of it. And, it. and like to a reader, if you're reading that in a book, which is what this was. It reads like days of our lives. It is. Oh, the book was like days of our I mean, it was so, it was very self-important. Um, so, yeah. So, this is the, that is the story that she poisoned him and then refused an autopsy. And said nobody can get an autopsy. And that so was, how long and like how long after the fact did she admit to poisoning him? So this was immediately, apparently. Like she told Wait, Gaston, what? she told Gaston right away. Then why did she refuse an autopsy? Because if she if they had autopsied the president's body, they would have found out that he was poisoned. But then she admitted it immediately to her confidant to this one guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, She's yeah, only yeah. admitting it to Gaston. She's not admitting it to anybody else. This is she admits it to Gaston, and then Gaston eventually puts this in a book and publishes it. <laughs> that piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. So that was the, the the confession of the murder of the 29th president. And the reason that you don't hear about this, like this story, is because um I mean, this this book was a huge hit, right? It came out in 1930, and it sold a shitload of copies. It, it sold out of its first printing in just two days, and then uh, second printing, it sold out in another four days. I mean, it was just massive, massive hit. But it was a huge scandal, and it was there were so many like after he died, there were so many scandals that hit Harding that it made people really believe this book. Right. In 1927, the woman Nan Britton wrote a book called the president's daughter about her relationship with Harding Ooh, and that she had, a, and that she had a child with the president. And then there were two or three major scandals that came out of his administration that had he lived, he were, would have probably not been reelected because they would hit the news and it would have been over That's for him. wild. Right. So you got, so you got no autopsy, you got all these scandals and then he comes out with his book saying that his, you know, that his wife feared all of these scandals and this affair and decided to poison him. So a lot of people believed it. And the reason that you don't hear about it in history class is because it's complete fucking bullshit. And it all got made up. You son of a bitch. You got me again. <laughs> the book is real and it was written and I read it and it is, it is way too long. And it is, and it does talk. It spells out very, I cannot believe you pulled this <laughs> on me again. Yeah. He made it all up. He made it up. He made up the whole story about the poisoning. It wasn't true. He had never actually even met the first lady of the United States. What? <laughs> he did work for the Bureau of Investigations, but he had never met Harding so or his what, wife. Well, what's the real story? The real story is he died of heart failure. And it's been, 
and his and his wife ended up dying the next year and this fucking asshole waited until everybody was dead that could sue him and he decided to put this bill this this, this book out <laughs> oh, okay so when when you were like at what point when you're writing the story did you think oh man i'm gonna pull a fast one on dalton oh i had a it was earlier this week <laughs> <laughs> I started writing it as like a traditional one, and I was like, "That's not enough fun." I mean, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Which one was it that uh, it was the police psychic? You did the same yeah, thing, Dorothy to me. Allison. Yeah, Dorothy Allison. You pulled a Dorothy Allison on me. But now we're going to talk about Gaston and who he actually was. So you got this book. It's published. It's a rave hit, a big hit. A lot of people believe it, but it's not true. Here's the thing about Gaston: means anytime he's running his mouth, he's lying. He is a perpetual liar. He lies about everything. So the Hardings had no children, right? Florence died a year after the president died. President Harding died. So no one was around to like disprove Well, wait, hold on. Florence didn't have any children. No. Children. Florence didn't have any children. No. Yeah. But but William, on the other hand. (laughs) Well, yeah. And and actually, funny enough, in um, was in 2015, Ancestry.com paid for DNA tests. And it actually proved that Harding was the father of Nan's daughter. We're going to talk now. We're going to talk a little bit more about who the actual Gaston means is and what was bullshit, what was real. Uh, this is a guy who J. Edgar Hoover called the most amazing figure in contemporary criminal history. <laughs> so Ooh. Hoover knew who he no, was. I'm going to say false. Well, I don't know. I think Hoover didn't like him because Charles Hoover- Manson might give him a run for his money. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you'd say amazing man. Though. Ooh, man, look at me. I'm on acid. I'm going to kill all these people. Ooh. This is why this episode is going to be six hours long. <laughs> right here. <laughs> though me and Charles Manson. <laughs> so, like I said, he never even, I mentioned before, he never even met Florence Harding. Uh, he had, however, come into contact with wealthy and powerful women before. Um, the one in specific, and, and, there's a lot about this guy. So I'm going to just kind of play the greatest hits, like the big stuff that he, he was kind of well known for. Um, but like in between all of this he's scheming and, and Jesus, Dalton. <laughs> I thought I hit the mute button. <laughs> uh, he's always scheming. He's always got something going on. And again, like I said, if his mouth is open, he's lying. Um, so this, we're going to talk a little bit about Mrs. Maud King. And she is the widow of a lumber baron named James C. King. Uh, Maud had met King in 1901. She was only 24. He was 74. So you can see what kind of marriage this is. Oh, boy. He's got She'll a lot of money. Your money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, four years after they got married, he died. And Maud inherited a, a good chunk of his fortune. Not everything. He actually also put some money aside for um, this home for men. It's a very strange of the time thing. And I don't want to get into it. But yeah, she got a bunch of money. Um, and according to one source, which is uh, not the best, but most believable source, but I like the story. Uh, Maud went wild with her inheritance and she traveled around the world and was went from, from the article quote, she dropped wine bottles from the Eiffel tower and exploded stink bombs in London's parliament building. You know what? Good for her. I don't know. She's 28. <laughs> she's got a bunch of money and she's just going wild. I, I like her. I, I have no oh, yeah. problem with Maud King. 
Um, so Gaston caught wise to her antics and her considerable fortune and made his move. Now, this is when I was talking earlier about how there were different stories about facts, you know, like you don't know what to look at. Right. So there's two stories for how he met Maude. The first is that he hired a thug to rob her in Chicago. And so then means would intervene and, and like overpower the thug and say, hi, I'm Gaston means nice <laughs> to meet you. <laughs> That was one story. Okay, the now what's the real one? <laughs> the real one is most likely that he he um, that she Mod King knew Gaston's wife. They both came up in Chicago and they had like mutual friends, and so they they knew each other that way. And then you know his wife Julie introduced Gaston to Mod King, and that's that's the story. That's okay, most I believe likely. that one. That's the one I believe. But the other one's just too good not to say. <laughs> uh, either way. Um, he became the, he very quickly became the manager of Maud's affairs and her fortune. So she never had to worry about anything. All of her expenses were taken care of by Gaston, who had access to all of her money. Uh, and he actually became so trusted to her that Maud's mother and sister also um, had him manage their finances, which is not wow, a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> but you could definitely see where this is going, right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot of disputes to how much of her fortune or how much money she inherited. The one I'm going to go with just for the story, because there's some figures that are even higher. This is the most conservative is that she inherited $400,000. And in 1917, $400,000 yes. in the early 1900s. Yeah. It's about $11.5 million. Good Lord. That is a lot of money. And of that, he uh, managed to steal let's just be totally honest with it he managed to steal about 150,000 from her which is about 4.3 million dollars that he was able to get um the rest she actually was just a really big spender you know like she's 28 she's got all this money she spends a shitload of it so she ends up spending almost all of it on just her lifestyle so when Gaston sees that the money's running out. He's he freaks out because he's supposed to be the money manager, right? He's supposed to make sure that this money doesn't run out. And he's been investing in very poor um, stocks and investing in poor companies. Like he's he, he, he's really bad at this, and he basically blows through her entire fortune of four hundred thousand um, dollars. So he comes up with this scheme where he's going to present. He's going to say there was a second will. And it was a will that James King wrote up right before he died. And this is the real will. And it was going to give uh, Maude even more of the inheritance than what she already got. The only problem, and this is going to come up a few times, he's terrible at forging documents. No one believes him. So he comes in with his <laughs> will and everyone's like, that is obviously bullshit. James King never did that. It's the wrong attorney. It's just like Gaston's just not good. He's a, he's, he's a good bullshitter. And if he talks to you, you believe whatever he says. He's really good at convincing people, but he's not good at forging documents. He's a good con man, but not a good forger. Right. Exactly. So he, um, he kind of has another idea. He does have another idea. And he decides, he tells, he tells Maude, he goes, we need to get out of the city. Let's go on a trip. Let's go back to my home state of North Carolina. You know, you can bring your mom and your sister. I'll bring my family. We'll all go together. We'll, we'll head down there uh, to North Carolina. She's a little bit hesitant at first. She wasn't very receptive, but eventually she gives in. They load up and they go back down to North Carolina. So why, while in North Carolina, Gaston twice tries to convince Maude to go boating with him. He's like, come on, I got a boat. Let's go out in the water. Let's go out in the middle of the water. There's a joke fun. to be made here. 
All right. So he's like, come out on the boat with me. She says, no, he does it again. She's like, no, I don't want to go out on the water. I don't have no desire to go out on the water. Um, so then he decides, you know what, let's do, let's do a hunting trip. Let's go take a hunting trip. We're going to go hunt rabbit. Um, and he eventually convinces Maude to go on this hunting trip with him. So he goes to the hardware store because that's where you buy pistols at the time. And he buys a very small pistol for Maude. And so the hunting trip is there. There's a bunch of people involved, but they all split up in smaller groups. And he and Maude go off together. You know, she's got her little pistol and he's he's got a pistol himself. And he goes out and they come upon this, this pond. And so he goes, I'd like to get a drink of water. Here's a pond. Let me drink out of this pond. And so he, his story is, is that he goes down to drink water. And as he's drinking out of this pond, Maud's gun goes off and he comes running out of the forest. And he's like, Oh my God, Maud shot herself. <laughs> that he, he had said, so his story was that he, while he was drinking, he told her not to play with the gun, but she started swirling it around in her hand. And I guess it went off and hit her in the head. What is this fucking Red Dead Redemption? What's going on? So it was, it set off a bunch of red flags because now you've got this rich heiress who was shot in the head in the middle of the woods. And the only person alive to have seen it is Gaston Means. So, so the biggest problem with Gaston's story is, as it turns out, when the, the coroner took a look at the body, that she was shot in the back of the head. Which makes you know, it. She was just like behind her head doing a swirly trick. Yeah. Yep. So damn near impossible. This is anything other than Gaston brought her out to the woods to shoot her so that all of his financials, so he wouldn't go to jail for stealing all her money and she wasn't going to realize that he ran out of all of her money. Right. Exactly so what it was. It's great. It's great. It's, it gets better. It's even better. So he's arrested and he's put on trial for murder because that's clearly what it is. Although. He gets there and the jury, um, he ends up intimidating two people on the jury. He bribes <laughs> another one. And then he takes the stand and he knows that there are several Klansmen on the jury. And he starts talking about white supremacy. What is happening? <laughs> and he, that's, he just starts spewing all this white supremacist garbage. Good old North Kakalaki boy. <laughs> and, what. and he's acquitted. He got away with it. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Yep, a little bribery, a little intimidation, a little white nationalism will get you off of just about anything up into and including. How did he know murder. they were Klansmen? Were they on the bench in their robes? Like, I think it was. I think it's a small town, and he just knew. He knew who were. You know, you you just he was in. Yeah, he was well connected enough for you. Just kind of knew at that time who was part of the clan. That's wild. That was right. <laughs> so up on uh, there on the, on the bench, I can't see shit out these things. Yep. So from there, you know, I talked about him working as a German spy. He did actually work as a German spy. That is true. Um, at the same time, he was also employed as a British spy, and he also worked for the U.S. Army Intelligence all at the same time. A triple agent? <laughs> wow. This dude does not have the mental capacity to be a triple agent. He's, he, but he did, and he did it for a long time. And he was, like, filing reports with all these different offices of, like, things that are happening, and he creates just... He just creates all this chaos. Like whatever he does, he creates so much confusion that people are like, okay, clearly he's doing a good job because I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. So like, just keep paying him. And so now he's getting three paychecks from three different governments that are all in conflict together. Um, he just confused people to the no, point that's of a profit. Literally my next line, his main tool was confusion. <laughs> that's what he did. 
He uh, just failed upwards. So that's all he did. He just consistently failed yeah. upwards. And and that's the thing is like he would keep busy people busy by chasing down like all these fake leads. And it made Gaston look like the most well connected dogged detective in each of the like the, that each of those countries had. So he's really good at like distracting and and, and being like that. Um, but eventually, this is kind of the dark side. He thought of a scheme that, if he managed to pull it off, would have literally changed the course of world history. Like this, is, this would have been big enough that he would have fucked up and really changed the outcome of World War One. His plan was to forge documents proving that the Americans were helping supply England with weapons and other goods to use against Germany. Oh no! And America again was a neutral country, so had these documents surfaced, America would have entered involuntarily entered world war one because of Gaston Bullock means <laughs> on the side of the Axis powers. Yep. yep. <laughs> oh, no, what? on the side. No, they were, if no, America was giving England it's, it's weapons. Then they would have to, they would, they would consider oh, okay. an ally with England. Were, okay. I thought it was the other way. No, no, no. The, okay. the Germans would have gotten upset and said, no, you're part of this war. Now you're backing I up. Thought the, they, the they were giving weapons yeah. to the Germans. Okay. No, no, no. They're giving weapons to English. Okay. Um, Fortunately, once again, he's a terrible forger and nobody believed the documents that he came up with. And so Good. that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he was no more, no more of that. Um, now, at this point, now we're just kind of almost where the book picks up. Um, Burns ends up hiring Gaston, like I said, at the Bureau of Investigations. Once again, not because he's a master spy, like Gaston thinks he is. You know, he's like, oh, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Um, from a book, again, called The Spectacular Rogue, it, this is from Mary goes, Gaston means his reputation was against him. But in the appointment of William J. Burns to the head of the Bureau of Investigation of the Department of Justice, Means found a friend in a high position. Burns could use Means because he knew exactly the kind of work of which Means was capable. If there were informers to be bribed or offices to be searched, or if there were ways uh, the law of the land was to be breached by the secret investigating arm of the Department of Justice, then Gaston Means was the best possible man to put on the job. So Burns is pretty hip to who he's got. You know, he's like, this guy's a fucking crook. And he, he's, <laughs> you know, but I can use that. I need a guy like that. Um in my, in my department. He's so. a guy that's willing to get dirty. Yeah. This is his guy. This yeah. is his guy. And so regardless of what Gaston said, he's like, I was a superior investigator. I was like, no, you were a fucking slime ball. And he knew you were a slime ball. That. And that's why he fired you because you were a slime ball. Um, so he, he gets, he gets to the bureau and rather than just being a slime ball, he also found a much more profitable endeavor by shaking down bootleggers. This is during prohibition. God, and damn so it. now he's got a badge and he can go tell people, Hey, you got to pay me a couple thousand dollars. And I'll look the other way while you smuggle this alcohol into New York Harbor. We've always been like this, haven't we? Yeah, we really have. The, the police have always been like this. Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. And Half the time, actually, most of the time, he wouldn't do anything. He'd just take the money. He wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't do fuck all. But the bootlegger couldn't do anything because what's he going to do? The bootlegger is going to go to the Bureau of Investigation and say, hey, yeah. this guy from the Bureau of Investigation is shaking me down. They're going to go, get the fuck out of here. And also, where's all that? It's like a drug dealer going to the cops. I mean, like, somebody yeah. stole my weed. Yep. <laughs> um, 
So this is a this is from another book called uh, Gangsters, Swindlers, Killers, and Thieves by Lawrence Block. I like this book. This book is a lot of fun. Um, Means was suspended by the Bureau in February 1922, but was employed by the Treasury Department as a customs agent. In March of 1924, while under indictment for federal offenses, Means testified before the Senate Committee investigating the conduct of the Attorney General of the United States. He brought with him two huge accordion cases that allegedly contained diaries of government work, but were actually had recently been uh, concocted with the assistance of several secretaries. When he later asked, was asked to deliver his materials to the committee, he said that he had given these large suitcases in a trunk containing his records to persons who represented themselves as Senate sergeant at arms. Nothing was ever found, undoubtedly, because it never existed. So <laughs> this fucking guy. All right. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit on that, he's he's deeply involved with the Harding administration for a little while. He is like this, like he's like their slime ball, right? He's like right. the guy that they can go said. And actually, he appears as a character on the HBO show Boardwalk Empire. He's, he's one I've of the guys of that on that show. show. Yeah. And and so he's Gaston Means is, is a character on there because he was involved with the attorney general. He was kind of like a go-between on a lot of these things. He's also working at the treasury department. He gets another government job as soon as he's fired from another one. Oh, how does he right. keep doing it? He's just a bullshit artist and he's really good at it. Like people believe his shit. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's kind of like flim flamming all over the place and well-connected. And, but at the same time, he's making a lot of money off of shaking down bootleggers. And then when he's called to testify, because he's made him own himself, such a big deal, you know, he's like, I'm really well, he shows up with two accordions full of blank paper and starts this, all these wild accusations in front of a, a Senate, the Senate. And then they the are like, Senate. yeah. And then they're like, oh, can we have those papers? He's like, I gave it to someone that said they worked with you and they took it away. I don't have any of this stuff anymore. Wow. Unbelievable. You could just do that. Yes. You couldn't <laughs> do it today. You could do it. Well, I think you actually could do it today. Um, <laughs> so he, forget earlier last year. They stormed the Capitol. <laughs> so, yes, you can probably do that today. I think you absolutely could do it today. Um, so he eventually was caught and tried. Uh, and this is again from Block's book. In June 1924, the government began the much delayed prosecution of means for violations of prohibition law. Uh, his conviction in this trial uh, and at a subsequent, subsequent one for extortion led to a sentence of four years in prison. At the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, rather predictably, Means worked his way into the good graces of the warden, and he served his term in cozy quarters with privileges accorded to only a few inmates. So even in jail, he's living even life. in jail. That is wild. So he went to prison. He was imprisoned at the exact same facility of friend of the show, Charles Ponzi. <gasps> no. Yes. This feels, so sorry. this feels so far removed from Ponzi. I feel it's like this is... No, this is... Pon Unfortunately, they missed each other by just a couple of weeks. Oh, my so God. So Ponzi got released, and they brought Means in. And the same the Dream Team. Hey, can you imagine if these two fucking guys got together? That is, that's crazy. Like, what would have happened had Charles Ponzi and Gaston Bullock Means gotten together and had some time in the cell together where they could scheme? They for sure were the condor way out of jail. Yeah, or they would have hated each other and not talk to each other. Like they would have been oh, like yeah. professional jealousy. That is the thing. Like when people are so alike, they just butt heads. Yep. Yeah. So I just think that's interesting. That's like maybe the my favorite, like if you catch my griff, what if movie scenario? It's like what oh, yeah. if Gaston Means and 
Charles Ponzi became buddies. And no, did sounds crime like together. a cool Patreon episode. I'm not writing that shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while he was in prison, a woman named May Dixon Thacker uh, reached out to him about the, about the Harding book. Right, she's actually the one who wrote the book. It was dictated by by Gaston. So Gaston was like, "I'll tell you the story based so on my like based on my writer. diaries." But she's the writer. Yeah, it says it's like as told to May Dixon Thacker, um, okay. and her brother actually was a writer who wrote a novel called The Klansman, which was turned into the movie Birth of a Nation, which is often credited as the first feature length movie made in the United States. Oh. And it was about the KKK. It was a really horrible racist movie and a really horrible racist book. Okay. I was about um, to ask, like, is it like an expose on the KKK? Or no, is it like no, 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 no. It's a, it's a, um, from 1915, it's a silent epic drama and it's just a film. Um, and it was actually even shown in the White House. Which is fun. Uh, it's almost yeah. like it's ingrained in our country's DNA, right? Yeah, yeah. It was attended by uh, Woodrow Wilson, who's a racist piece of shit, and was the president. And he decided to screen a movie about the Klan, very <laughs> pro Klan, in the White House. So that's awesome. That's cool. Very cool. Very cool shit. Anyway, she reached out, said, "I would love the you know would to hear your story." Um, because she knew Gaston was around the Hardings, you know, in the Harding um, group and there's rumors and he makes shit up and gets out there. Uh, and so she's like, I want the real story of what happened. And he's like, I'll give you the real story. And so starts cooking up the story about how Florence killed her husband. And it was a murder and not a, not a heart attack. So he was released on July 28th, 1928. And he set to work with Thacker on the strange death, death of President Harding. Uh, they initially, well, interestingly enough, after they got done with the book, they uh, they approached Nan Britton, the woman who Harding had an affair with, because she had just published her book a year before. And they're like, oh, you have publishing connections. Will you publish our book? And she was like, no, 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 I'm not publishing that shit. I absolutely will not. <laughs> um, and so it, they ended up self-publishing, basically. Gaston formed his own publishing company. They, they self-published. And it was huge. I mean, it sold just a ridiculous amount of books. And a year after it came out, um, Thacker came out and said, I was duped. I was lied to. He made all of this up. And I'm sorry that we published this book. So he had At a least you came out and said it. Huh? At least she came out and said it. Oh, yeah. I think she was, I think she was genuinely upset because she wanted to be a serious writer. Yeah, and she got conned. And she got conned. And so she had to come out and kind of get ahead of it. So she, you know, she does do that. Um, it, it didn't matter, though, because by the time she came out with that, he was onto his next scheme. Um, he <laughs> goes on. This is, this is my favorite. This is, I just think it's so fucking ridiculous. Um, Gaston came into contact with a man named Ralph Easley, and he was a director of a program called the National Civic Federation. This is like essentially like a very well-financed anti-communist organization. Right. So their whole thing is to find communists and, and seek out and, and suss out communists and big corporations, big companies. And so they have all these agents. Well, you, brother, there's not any communist big organization. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, communists got to eat, too. I don't mean not. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, not, no, like not like a not CEO. They, yeah, no, not, not a CFO. Big corporations. So Corp- I keep saying corporations, corporations, just say like business, say like job, work. Yeah. Workly. Um, so Gaston persuaded easily that he was an expert on communism. 
<laughs> Although, as Julie means, to seize the means of something. <laughs> <laughs> Although, as Julie means, his wife said, at the time, Gaston knew nothing about communism that could be learned that could not be learned from the newspaper. Easy was convinced when Gaston promised to show him one of the most important members of the Russian secret police, the OG, OGPU, and then took the white-haired director uh, to the Library of Congress, where he pointed out a sinister figure who was skulking behind a newspaper. What? <laughs> this is what Gaston does. He's like, I swear I'm an expert. I'm going to go and finger the the head of this Russian singer. Not like that. Point to point to. Mm. Don't look at me like that. Mm. Um, you said it, brother. <laughs> anyway, he's like, so he's just pointing. But it to this. turns out how Austin is a Willa Coochie. Well, I mean, it depends on the coochie. <laughs> Isn't that a country song? Isn't that with George Strait? No, that's the uh, Chattahoochee. 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 Yeah. So he's he's there in the Library of Congress. He's with this guy who runs this anti-communist organization. He goes, that was the man, Gaston said. He was one of the most. That's where he got mixed up. Hmm. Come on down to the Chattahoochee where it gets hotter than a hoochie's coochie. Okay. No, that's not what it says. That is the song. I'm being dead serious. That is the song. Okay. So what does that mean? It gets hotter than a hoochie's coochie. So what's a hoochie? A hoochie is like, you know, like a fun girl. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Like a fun girl. Yeah, whatever you say. likes to have fun. <laughs> a fun time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started over. I did not mean. <laughs> Austin's trying to catch me in some slut shaming scandal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So he goes, that was the man, Gaston said. He was one of the most important Russian operatives in the world. Easley was astounded. On the strength of such persuasive ways, Gaston secured a job at one of Easley's operations. He would make a trip to the United uh, would make a trip around the United States to uncover communist activity. Easley did not check Gaston's bona fides or his stories. If he had checked it, he would have discovered that the quote Russian spy in the Library of Congress was Walter Liggett, uh, an an amiable Washington newspaper correspondent who was sitting quietly under the dome of the Library of Congress that day, minding his own business and doing a bit of research. So he just pointed out a random guy. So that's oh, a communist. okay. This guy was a this guy was a newspaper writer and was doing research. And Gaston they just got confused, like, oh, uh, yeah. He just was like him, that guy. That's the guy. He's a communist. He's <laughs> literally like this guy is. This is the well, the definition of a witch hunt. Where he's just like, oh, you see that guy over there? That's a communist. That and this, poor guy. And this guy is like, oh, my God, you really do know what you're talking about. Like, you really know what you're talking about. This is amazing. We should pay you money. So oh, fuck, now Gaston's got a new job. He's a communist hunter. <laughs> the commie hunter. And this organization is very, very well funded. So he's got a lot of money to go hunt communists with. And this is, this is going to become his life for a while. So... um he decided to hit the road. He was like, I got to go city to city and find all the communists and make notes and send these notes back to the home office and let them know that there's communists everywhere. Um, so back to, to the book, uh, the, the, um, Oh man, what's that book called? I keep blanking on the name of this damn thing. Spectacular rogue. Um, these remarkable foreign agents stayed at none, but the best hotels. So naturally, 
Gaston must do the same to keep an oh eye on him. Oh my God, what a con, man. This is incredible. <laughs> Gaston trailed them along Canada, across Canada during the summer season to stop at Banff and Lake Louise. He went to Vancouver, which Julie adored. The spies were headed south, thank goodness, when fall came. So Gaston took the family motoring down the scenic coastal highway to Los Angeles. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. There, the spies decided to hole up for a time perhaps sensing that Gaston's son ought to be in school. Gaston rented three suites in an expensive apartment house on Crenshaw Boulevard, one for Julie, one for their son to play in, and one for his office. They rented a house for his son to play in. Yeah, yeah, because he's got all this money that's not his. It's all these in- wealthy industrialists are funding this little organization, and Gaston <laughs> is taking them for a fucking ride. <laughs> you know what? Good for him best hotels someone else is paying (laughs) who cares so february is an excellent month for spy hunting in mexico and that is what gaston decided to do when it turned a bit chilly it was the best trip of all julie said fortunately while they were visiting mexico city president rubio was shot by an assassin the assassins for gaston knew it was two men were the russian agents of course gaston telephoned ralph easley and gave him all the detail as always, he was right on the spot when the fur flew. So, and then, um, of course, the people backing it were like, oh, my God, he's right there. He's yeah, right he's there. there. He knew. <laughs> so the entire time Gaston was wiring easy reports of his various exploits, demanding large cash advances as a means to continue the investigations. Easy complied and sent the money. And then Easy would start to get a little suspicious of Gaston. Um, Gaston would simply uncover a brand new ring of communists that he was hot on the heels of. And this is again from that spectacular rogue. Ralph Easy began to grow restive under Gaston's heavy demands for money. So Gaston decided to exhibit another important, quote, red for Easy's benefit. He took Easy to Chicago. In front of the Congress Hotel, he pointed out a man who was behaving in a, the most furtive manner. That mysterious fellow was named Niles Jorgensen, a powerful figure in the international communist movement, Means said. Easley was amazed. <laughs> the man was well-dressed. He appeared to be a man of culture. He did not look like a Scandinavian. He did not look like a communist. <laughs> that was the secret of it. That's how you yeah. can tell. <laughs> yeah, as he said. Exactly. <laughs> that was the secret of it, Gaston said, grinning like his into, in his superior way. That was the danger of the communist movement. <laughs> Nothing was what it seemed to be. Did this guy single-handedly start the Red Scare? I know, but he made a lot of money off of it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the fun part. And who was Niles Jorgensen? He was actually an urbane but disbarred lawyer of Gaston's acquaintance by the name of Norman T. Whitaker. <laughs> oh, poor Norman. Poor Norman. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, in total, it turns out that Gaston had squeezed the National Civic Federation of about $200,000, which would be about $3.8 million today. Ooh, man, that is a lot of money. That's a lot of fucking money. Holy shit. Um, but he got bored again. He like squeezing, like traveling all over the place and living this, like he's got money basically. Like he's got money in the bank. He's, he could do whatever he wants. He doesn't want to keep making up these stories about communists. It's just, it's what, so he's, he gets bored. He's done this before. He, he, he just decides, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to chase communists anymore. Then came March 1st, 1932, when Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was kidnapped from his home. 
This is the very famous Lindbergh baby saga. <gasps> this Lindbergh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Lindbergh is Charles Lindbergh is a national hero and he's like in the headlines every day because he was the the first solo nonstop flight from New York to Paris in 1927. It had never been done. It took him 30 hours. He flew his own plane, the spirit of St. Louis, which is a very famous plane. And so he had a baby. This is their only child, their only son. And the son was kidnapped from his own house. And it was a massive story. So um, upon reading about the kidnapping, Gaston was quoted as saying, this is the most dastardly crime I ever heard of. Whoever did this should be shot. (laughs) There was some dude named Bruno, right? It, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to to what actually what actually happened. But okay. Gaston finds himself thrust into this world, this whole story. I cannot believe. Of course involved. he does. Of course he did. <laughs> right. Like, uh, of course. <laughs> he sees a national controversy. He's like, I'm here. I'm ready. I got this. Let me figure out how to make some money. I'm a detective. I can do this. Let's go. Yep. So he was soon contacted by a woman named Evelyn Walsh, Walsh McLean. She was a mining heiress her, from Colorado. And the wife, well, it was, I think they might've been on their way to a divorce at this point, but uh, the wife of the publisher of the Washington post, she had a shit ton of money. This was, this is like your stereotypical socialite, right? Tons of money that she inherited. Then she was married to a wealthy family on top of that and then divorced. And she just goes around and, you know, gives money to whatever charitable institution she decides she wants to do. Um, She actually was the last private owner of the hope diamond. You ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. Was this giant diamond of legend. It was legendary because it apparently had a curse on it. Um, going back oh, to, I think I've heard of this from movies. Yeah, it's a it's a cheesy plot tool, but it, like going back to the 1600s, everybody who had possessed the Hope Diamond had some ill ending. Um, this woman did not. She ran into a, a little couple of unfortunate things, but nothing that her money couldn't take care of. Anyway. Um, she reaches out to Gaston, uh, and she knew he was a con man. Like she absolutely acknowledged that she was not dumb in that regard. She, uh, everyone at that point knew that he was a con man, right? He had admitted that the book was fake and like everybody just knew they're like, this guy's a scoundrel stay clear. However, she did think that he was really well connected in the underworld and had a better chance than anyone to find the Lindbergh baby. Hmm. So he, she was friends with the Lindberghs. She also knew the Hardings, and that's how she knew who you know Gaston was. Like so she was connected. Him being a no good, down, just rotten piece of shit really helped him in this case. Yes, it's weird. <laughs> it's like it, I think she thought she was really smart. She's like, I'm gonna find the last person you think I should find, and he'll be the best person to find this kid. This sounds like a movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, Gaston took the job and immediately went to work. Uh, before long, he notified Evelyn that he had located the gang that kidnapped the baby and needed $100,000 for ransom and an additional $4,000 for his own expenses to return with the baby. Evelyn said yes and sent the money. She then accompanied Gaston to El Paso, which she mentioned earlier. Um, <laughs> the, the gang. I love how I just made a joke. And you're like, you mentioned that earlier. <laughs> yeah. Hey, remember you were talking about El Paso? So uh, she's in El Paso, Texas, because because apparently the gang that kidnapped the baby was located in Mexico, and Evelyn and Gaston were going to meet them face to face to get the little baby back. Evelyn panicked at the last minute, fearing her safety, and backed out. And mm-hmm. I, part of my brain says, based on what happened to Maud. 
I'm like, was Gaston going to do something to right. Evelyn in Mexico? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I just, I'm like, he's killed one before. He's killed one heiress. And now look what, uh, anyway, it didn't happen. Uh, Gaston went alone. When he arrived, though, the kidnappers backed out of the deal and he returned empty handed. No, mm. no kid. That did not make Evelyn happy. Nope. Um, did they keep? The, did he keep the money? Or yeah, did... oh, hell yeah, he kept okay. the money. He's like, <laughs> okay. sorry, the deal, baby. They backed out of the deal, but I don't have your money either. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, <laughs> so what Evelyn was unaware of was that the body of the Lindbergh child had been found ten days after the kidnapping, only a few miles from the home. Uh, all of this was just a con. Gas yeah, so uh, was just full full shit. Yeah, he was full of shit, and he kept it going. And he <laughs> now he's got a uh, hundred thousand dollars plus what four thousand dollars expensive shit. Yeah. So then, so this is the you part. See that what I like. the real play is: go out and kidnap a different baby and bring it back. Yeah, yeah, that's the play. That's. The I mean, move. he's twenty months. So he's a year and a half. It's going to be a little harder to swap a, a year and a half old baby. Oh come on! Then you can find like I'm. I'm assuming like blonde hair, blue eyes. You yeah, go totally. Find, you can go find a little blonde hair, blue eyes baby. Nobody knew the difference. <laughs> so. McLean was mad and her lawyers contacted him demanding the return of the hundred thousand dollars. Gaston replied, <laughs> this is a quote. Why don't you have it? I had handed it to, I have it to a representative. No, I'm sorry. Start over again. Why don't you have it? I handed it to a representative from your firm. Funny too. When I demanded a receipt, he only shrugged. May I now have a receipt for the hundred thousand dollars? Oof. So he, he said, should. I already gave it to your guy and they must have taken it and run off. I don't have your money. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, he, yeah, he got arrested and he was tried. He was sentenced to 10 years for the incident and would die while he was in prison. I feel like this is unlawful prosecution. <laughs> he asked for a receipt. He did not get one. No, nope. he said he he's like, well, I gave it to your firm. So now you should give me a receipt for the, the return of the $100,000. And they're like, no, you're going to jail. I think it also, <laughs> I, I think I, so he, he was in the Bureau of Investigations. He worked with J. Edgar Hoover, right? And yeah. J. Edgar Hoover did not like him and thought he was an idiot. He could see through all his bullshit. So I'm sure when something like this crossed Hoover's desk, he's like, we're going to get this motherfucker. Cause now Hoover's in charge of the FBI at this time. So he's right. like, he's going to prosecute anybody that he wants to, cause that's how he ran the agency. Yeah. So, yeah. So he went away for 10 years. Um, how he died. There's a few different versions of how he died. Apparently one was that he was having a gallbladder operation and died on the table. One was, it was a heart attack. Whatever. He Is there any good ones? No, not really. Kind Aww. of boring. And he definitely peters out at the end. He's not nearly as much fun as he was early on when he was <laughs> shooting heiresses in the head and uh, pretending that the first lady killed the president of the United States. But that's him. That's Gaston Bullock means. You know, to hunt for a communist hunter, this dude seems like a socialist hero. <laughs> a working class man. <laughs> Shooting heiresses in the head, framing the first lady of the United States for murder. You know, this yeah, dude honestly, seems like he's for the people. He's definitely one that never stole from people that needed the money. He always stole up. He never stole down, you know? Like he stole from wealthy people. He stole from the I mean, yeah, like it's you're not you don't hate this guy. No, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think he's good. <laughs> no, <laughs> but he's not as evil as, say, like a Ted DiBiase or a right. fucking, I don't know, like a uh, who's like the worst person recovered, Fred Phelps. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing like that. Yeah, I don't like, know. The, the last one stealing a hundred thousand dollars from a family that just lost their oh, only yeah, child. Is kind that's of true. Yeah, but that's no, but he didn't. But he didn't true. steal it from the Lindberghs. He stole it from this wealthy socialite who wanted to help the Lindberghs uh, find their baby. Uh, she had a lot of money. Bye, she was you're, st- you're still leading right, this though. family on that just yeah. lost their kid. But I, yeah. I don't think he had any contact with the Lindberghs. You know, he was only contacting. You know, McLean, like he didn't, right. he, he wasn't directly. Don't defend him, Austin. Don't defend I am. him. <laughs> I'm going to defend him. Yes. I'm going to defend him. I'm not going to break his hip because he's already dead. So I'm going to defend him. <laughs> but uh, you want to fight Nap Hill or Nap, Nap Hill's son? His grandson. Grandson. Grandson's oh, dead too. Shit. Uh, no, I, I just, I'm like, we, well, we also had such a heavy episode last time, like last, which I really enjoyed. But boy, it was, I think, something silly and fun. And if I can fool Dalton, I always look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, you so. got me. You got me. I was uh, led astray, hoodwinked, bamboozled. <laughs> Again, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Damn right. So what we got next? What's coming up? Have anything fun coming up? I I haven't even thought about it, to be honest. This so, one, I, this one this I, was- I put through the, I mean, I have a list that I'm working through, but I put this one up on our, on our Discord, and this one was the most popular mm, subject. So that was what the vote was for. Yeah. Okay. Well, listeners, um, I have a proposition for you. I put this into If You Catch Our Griff group chat, and Austin wanted me to work on a story, and I will tell you why I am dog shit at writing stories. So I'm going to put this out for the listeners to decide. I want to do a story on how Kanye West, yep, you heard me, Kanye West, is cheating the government out of hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax money by running his Sunday service as a religious organization. Now, if you would like, if you catch my riff to cover Kanye West, please hassle Austin at Austin Agogo on Twitter. <laughs> That's right. I'll repeat that. Austin Agogo on Twitter. Slide his DMs. Tell him you want the Kanye episode. I do not succumb to peer pressure. I'm too old and miserable to deal with that. I mean, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if that's it, I guess we have friends. That's, do we have yeah. friends? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we have friends. Go ahead. We do, do have you... friends. Okay. We have friends. <laughs> you can check out our friends at Pod Van Dam, WTV Guide. Super fantastic. Uh, X over at Odds with Wrestling and Sweet Stuff and Better Things. You can find us on Twitter at Catch My Griff Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Griff Boy Dalton. You can find Austin on Twitter at Austin Agogo. My Twitter is not at Griffboy Dalton. It's at Griffboy Dalton. You can find me on Twitter at Griffboy Dalton. You can find Austin on Twitter at Austin Agogo. And you can find Charlie on Twitter at Charlie underscore Butters. And listen, if you're going to be a grifter and you're going to steal money from people, make it rich people. Yes. And also listen to my other podcast against Austin. <gasps> Austin does a plug. <laughs> Uh, you didn't tag Austin. it with you with your friends. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> against awesome. Austin, it is an against me podcast, uh, and I think we have four episodes out now. Four or What's five. What's the listener count like on that bad boy? I'm not telling you about that. That's my <laughs> business. Uh, you can find uh, against Austin on every any platform you get podcasts on. It's where uh, Dwayne tells Austin all about the band against me. You could, they go through their EPs, all of their studio albums, and I'm assuming some live albums, right? Yeah, he just told me that we were going through the live albums too, which I'm okay. a little, I'm a little, I don't know, I'm a little worried about the live albums because I'm not a big live album person. But okay, 
we suffered through those EPs, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I think that's it. That's it. Anything you're working on, Charlie? Any side? You got any side girls going on out here? Oh, man. I'm, I'm all good. Okay. Well, Austin, say the line. Say the bit. Stay beautiful. <laughs> Shut up, Dalton. Oh, my. Got to eliminate the right time I was literally about to tap out. Like, I need to go lay down my back. Okay. <laughs>